we haven't met, my name is Ryan. I, uh, one of the pastors here on team, uh, it was my wife up here in the pink jacket uh, moments ago. And uh, together we lead across the ministries of, of our church. And I got to tell you, you know, I was in Logan this morning, but, uh, you know, everywhere I go, I am just hearing such incredible reports, not just of our team, which can we thank all of our pastoral team? I know this feels a bit self-congratulatory, but whatever. It's like, cheer for us. Um, that felt weird. But it's not, it's not just our pastoral team that I'm so proud of. It's that... Everywhere I'm going, I'm hearing of such incredible reports of people stepping out in faith in their own life. And in their world, people seeing the kingdom of God coming in just such incredible ways. We're seeing people step out into new realms of faith and seeing God come through with uh, just things like promotions that, you know, during difficult economic times. We're seeing people healed of just what, what were deemed incurable issues. And we're seeing this as people, you, us, together as a church, are saying, we want to take a hold of everything that God is doing in our midst. How many people know that, you know, and I've said this before up here on this stage, we, we, I just have such a burden in my spirit that we need, like never before, we always need it, but it feels like right now, we need like never before revival in our times. We need a mighty move of God in a way that radically reshapes and reorients the heart of our nation. We need to see God move in our city in a way that turns division into unity, that turns hearts that are tormented into hearts that are filled with peace. And we need a move of God like never before. How many people know that one encounter with God can change everything? You know, one encounter with God is all you need and it can flip your life upside down. But how many people know, though one encounter is all you need, one encounter is not all there is. One encounter is all you need to transform the way of being, of moving your life in one direction and God stepping in and changing the course of your life. One encounter can change everything, but one encounter is not all that there is available to us. And I am just convinced that we are moving in this time away from just moments of encounter to learning to live lives of His presence. And so what I want to do tonight is talk to you about what it looks like for us to move beyond having simply moments of surrender to learning to live lives of surrender. And I want to encourage you tonight what it looks like to be people of the presence of God. You see, I love this generation to talk to the young adults for a moment. I, I just love for the, about the, this generation, it wants the authentic thing. Right? We, wanna, we want the real thing. We're done playing religious games. We're done uh, posturing. We're done kind of putting up just this facade of religious do-gooding. We want to experience the real thing. One of the dangers, though, of wanting and deeply desiring the real thing is we spend our entire lives going from one moment of encounter to the next moment of encounter, and we live lives based on altar calls and moments of surrender and, and without giving focused attention to what does it look like for me to live a life of surrender? Because here's the thing, between the moments of experiencing God, and if you're new here, what I'm talking about is, you know, we, we talk about the presence of God. And it's like, well, I thought that there was, God was everywhere. 
Right? And this is true. We read about this. David talks about the fact that, you know, where can I go to depart from your presence? I go to the top of the mountains, you're there. I go to the bottom of the seas, you're there. I don't know how he did it, but he figured it out that God is everywhere and everywhere all at once. There is nowhere that you can go that you will be absent from the very presence of God. God is at all times, in some sense, there. But there is also a second kind of the presence of God. Jesus says that where two or three of you are gathered, I will be there in the midst. He says that I will manifest myself in your presence. There is one sense that God is always everywhere, but there is a second sense in which he manifests himself. What I mean by that is he brings himself, his, he, he brings himself into our world, in our minds and to our senses. God reveals himself and he brings his presence nearer to us than we could really ever imagine. And what I want to talk to you about, because here's the thing, we, we live aware of his omnipresence, but there is this second sense that God wants to invite us in to living lives aware and in constant communion with his manifest presence. And what can happen is if we live our lives simply going from altar call to altar call, moment to moment to moment, what often occurs in those gaps is in comes the spirit of Shania Twain. Where between the moments of elation, a spirit comes on us where we stand back and we say, well, that don't impress me much. I'm sorry. But here's the thing. I'm watching across our nation and I've watched my generation grow up having these incredible moments of, of surrender, having these incredible moments of encounter. But when they're reduced to simply moments, we run the risk of turning into walking thermometers that judge whether or not this is up to my standard and whether I'm going to lean in. And here's what I want to do to you, to do with us all together tonight is help us move from having moments to learning to live as people of the presence of God. Not standing back, deciding whether or not church is good enough, worship is good enough, the preaching, God willing, is good enough. That it's like, I'm going to stand back and decide whether or not I'm going to experience God. No, no, no. God wants you to learn to be a carrier of his presence, not deciding whether you will be a partaker. And so what I want to do tonight is talk to you about what it looks like to live as people of the presence of God. Because there is such a sense that God is inviting us in. However, there is sometimes a confusion as to how we live it out. I uh, grew up in Ipswich. Uh, there's still a lot of Ipswich in me. Um, and I'm kind of proud of it uh, in certain rooms. Um, <laughs> but I grew up, uh, friends and I, uh, we had a tinny. Uh, my friend had a tinny, and we would often go out uh, on this tinny on the Bremer River, the mighty Bremer, brown snake, bull shark infested, foot and a half deep Bremer River. And... Uh, because we were very aware of the bull shark situation, uh, we'd invented a way, and we'd been trialing for a couple of weeks, uh, a new way of launching this tinny. And effectively, what we would do is we would, my friend and I would jump on uh, each side of this, you know, small tinny. If you don't know what a tinny is, it's like a, just a beast of a machine. Uh, it's like, it's, you know what a tinny is. Um, but what we would do is we would jump on both sides of this small kind of tin boat and we would, 
We would take a running start. As we would, as our feet would hit the water, we would both jump in and we would sail across kind of the knee depth until we reached deep enough to put the motor down and then we would get going. We'd been trialing this for some time, we'd been working on it, we'd been workshopping it, there'd been a lot of kind of R&D involved in it, and we were like, today is the day that we're really going to set sail. So we grabbed both sides of this tinny, we took a running start, and I mean, we picked up speed like we hadn't ever before. And we're like, okay, this is really going to work. And we, we hit the water, we both jumped in, we sailed across kind of the knee-deep waters, and we hit the deep water, and at that moment we realized why we picked up so much speed. We forgot to attach the motor to the back of the boat. And so we found ourselves now, and I mean, because we were rolling with a four-stroke little petrol motor, which was the height of engineering, uh, we just felt so confident we didn't need oars. And so now we were in the deeper parts of the Bremer, Bullshark, Brown River, floating adrift, wanting to go where we wanted to go, but unable to get there. And here's the thing, maybe you've been with us over these past, I don't know how long it's been, 60 days, however long, as we've had this incredible running start at what God is wanting to do in our lives. It's like, he's like, he's, it's like let's go, we're going to get this, we're going to launch off into the deep. And now that we've kind of taken off, you find yourself feeling almost adrift, feeling almost frustrated, confused as to how I keep moving into the deeper things that God is calling me into. So what I want to do tonight is just give you a couple of of encouragements as to what it looks like to move forward as the people of the presence of God so that we stop feeling like we are lost, adrift, confused and frustrated as to why it feels like I only ever have moments when God is calling me into a life. Would you come with me to Hebrews chapter 10 verse 15? We're going to read through to 25 and I want to give you three encouragements around what it looks like to be a person of the presence of God. Can we do that? Very good. Um, Fantastic. So Hebrews 10, really what is going on in this chapter and really all through the book of Hebrews is the writer is informing his audience how Christ has not only fulfilled everything that people had been waiting on, but that he is not just the fulfillment, but he is the true and better version of everything that's been alluded to in the Old Testament. Everything that they had been hanging their hopes on, Jesus has not just met the bar, he has smashed it. And so then he comes in chapter 10 and he says that every priest that you have been hanging your hopes on, Jesus is so much better. Every sacrifice you thought would be able to fulfill your needs, Jesus is the true and better sacrifice. Jesus is the true and better priest. He is so much bigger and better than you could ever imagine. And he says, in light of all of this, in light of the fact that he is the once and for all sacrifice, it goes on in verse 15. Let me pick it up here. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant that I will make with them at that time. Uh, After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their heart and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. Pause there. I want to tell somebody in this room this evening, perhaps that you are better at remembering your sins than God. 
you know that very often when it comes to being repentant, though we sometimes just in an overwhelming sense of the fact that, you know, we become so aware of the fact that we've fallen short of what God wants for us, we hold on to it. And God is saying, I'm trying to let that thing go into the sea of forgetfulness, and yet you continue to hold on to it. He says, I'm doing my level best to forget about that, yet you keep on bringing it up. Perhaps it's because we refuse to allow Christ to take the whole of our lives. We've refused to allow Christ to take all of our sins, and we want to hold on to those one or two things. And God says, your sins and lawless deeds, I will remember no more. When we come to him by way of salvation and renewal, we have been completely forgiven and God wants to do away with our past, not hang it over our heads. And maybe you're here and you've, you've, your, your experience of Christianity, your view of what God and this whole Jesus thing is all about is, is just about this invisible guy hanging over your head the fact that you're at fault when in actuality the story of Christianity, the story of Jesus is, I have come to pick up all of that error, all of that sin, all of your wrongdoing, and do away with it once and for all. He's not into holding it over your head. He wants to release you from the fullness of your sin and error and wrong. He says, your sins and lawless acts, I will remember no more. Where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God. I want to encourage you, or or have you ever considered perhaps that there was once a time that being with God, that being near God, God, which we like to talk about all the time in this church of being in the presence of God, drawing near to God, uh, just, you know, come to God. All of that was inaccessible to humanity. Have you ever stopped to think that being with God at one time was inaccessible, was out of reach, was, was just not something that was available to anyone? Sometimes we become so blasé with the fact that it's like I can just kind of walk into it. There was at one stage, God in His holiness was so resplendent in His majesty that no human being could draw near to Him. It's so easy for us to forget that the only reason we can stand in the presence of God is by the blood of Jesus. In the Old Covenant, The Jewish people only had surrogate access to the most holy place, the presence of God. Once a year, a high priest would enter and offer a sacrifice on behalf of the people. But what Jesus accomplished on the cross was he said, I want to do away with this idea of just surrogate access. And I want to tear open the division between God and men. And I want to open a way for all of humanity to come to God through me. Isn't that wild? That, 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 I, I mean, and it's, so, it's so easy for us to forget that, that the presence of God is, is, this was at one stage inaccessible to us, but has now been made available to us, but by the grace of God. That Jesus has opened to each and every one of us the very presence of God. The curtain has been torn. 
During those six hours, one Friday, about 2,000 years ago, Christ cried out that it is finished. And the division between man and God came crashing down. The way has been made open. To say it simply, because of the cross, I can know the presence. Because of the cross, I can know true intimacy with God. I can know what it is to be known and know God. Experience His presence in my life for myself. And it's so important that at the outset of this message, as I begin to talk about what it is to press in, we need to start with an absolute overwhelming awe in the fact that it is by Jesus alone any of this is accessible. That it is by Christ's invitation alone that we can have even just a taste of what it is to be in the presence of God. And when we lose sight of grace, we get our souls twisted up and busy trying to prove why we deserve to be there. We had no right, we have no right to be in the presence of God except Christ put us on his shoulders and carried us in himself. And when we stop and we have an awe in the fact that it is by Jesus alone that we can know his presence we can actually begin to cultivate in our lives a practice of living near to God. He says, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, that is, his new and living way open to us through the curtain, that is his body, we have a great high priest over the house of God. Listen to these. Let us then... Draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. Having our hearts sprinkled, I love that word, to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on to love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. writer of Hebrews says, now that a way has been opened, now that you can experience the very presence of God, the writer of Hebrews gives three of their 14 exhortations or encouragements that all start with these two words, let us. So what I want to do tonight is look at, or really give you three lettuces, not like cause and iceberg, but three lettuces to be people of the presence of God, encouragements to keep moving forward. I want to give you three things that's kind of like putting the motor on your tinny so you can get going in those deep things of God. Now that Christ has opened a way, now that you don't need a priest, you don't need a pastor, you don't need a worship band to bring you into the presence of God, Jesus alone has done that. How do we persevere as people of the presence First thing, he says, he says, let us draw near. Let us draw near. He says, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and the full assurance that faith brings. The full assurance. The full assurance that faith brings. In John, like John, John, and then one John, the writer says two times, he says, all of this has been written Everything that we've kind of compiled here has been written for this reason. So that you may know the life that you have been given. Why is that? Because God, far be it from our ever-loving Father that He would offer us salvation 
forgiveness, adoption. He would offer us healing. He would offer us wholeness and refuse to allow us to know that we have it. What God wants to do is not just secure these things for you, but he wants to bring you to a place that you know that you know that you have these things in Christ. He wants to bring us to a place that we know that we belong in his presence. Have you ever been somewhere that you knew that you just didn't belong? Maybe you were like a plus one to a family function that turns out to be a very small funeral. Um, (laughs) I have. Um, I remember a little while ago I was in America for something or other and and, uh, as I was walking around, uh, I came across a premiere. We don't have them a lot uh, in Brisbane, but in Los Angeles they do. You know, with the red carpet and everyone's there. This carpet, however, was green because it was the Muppets premiere. Um, You know that just IMDB hit. Rotten Tomatoes, certified rotten. Um, I came across this and, uh, you know, I saw that everybody on that side of the rope was dressed similarly to how I was dressed. So what I did was I paid somebody for a bucket of popcorn and the bollard was very low, almost too low, almost invitingly low. And so I just stepped over it and walked in. And I spent just a couple of minutes, I wasn't there long because I'm just a coward, um, but I, I kind of walked into this room and there's all of these, like, you know, B-list celebrities and God bless them and, you know, the press and everything else and bouncers that looked like they really loved their job. Um, and I was very aware that I had gained access to a place that I had not been invited. And can I tell you, the entire time that I was there enjoying this experience, I was fearful, I was fretful, and I was standing on the edges wondering when, when I was going to be found out. And so I did what every normal person would do. I dipped before I got found out. What's wild about it is, as I'm thinking about it, so many of us, this is our experience of God. We we are so aware of the fact that we think we don't belong near to his presence. So we spend the entire time when we are invited to draw near, standing on the edges, being like, maybe he's going to find out. Maybe he's going to figure out that I don't belong here. And we think that we somehow, I don't know, with a Bible-sized battering ram, somehow just like bashed our way into the presence of God because we forget that we did not get in there ourselves, but we were carried in on the invitation of the grace of Jesus. Come on, can I tell you, I'm so tired of people being crippled by the lie that says that you are not welcome in the presence of God when it is not our invitation, but the invitation of Jesus that brought us close. That it's not our efforts that made a way, it was the finished work of Jesus. And can I tell you, there are times that we struggle, there are times that we doubt, we feel alienated, we let ourselves down, we do things that we know that we shouldn't, and our hearts begin to condemn us. But here's the thing, our confidence that we have, our peace before Him is this, it is not how we feel that determines whether we belong, it is what He has done that determines whether We belong. It is by grace alone that you have been saved. It is at His invitation that we can draw near. It is at His work that we have been saved. It says this in Hebrews 1. After He had provided 
after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Friends, can I tell you, you only sit down when the work is done. After he'd done everything required for us to be completely forgiven and cleansed, he sat down. He has a place of, of royalty because the work is finished. And what he wants us to do is he wants us to place our faith in him so that we can receive the full assurance in his work, not our work. That we can experience in our hearts, we can take a hold of the work that Christ has done. Friends, can I tell you that oftentimes we forget to exercise our faith in this area. So often we we have more faith to believe for somebody's healing than we have faith to believe that we've been forgiven. I mean, really forgiven. Watching people with more faith to lay hands on people than to believe that Christ has us in His. Can I tell you, learn to exercise your faith in Jesus for His cleansing work. The full assurance that faith brings, it comes from knowing and trusting that God's grace is greater than our sins. Faith in Christ to clean me, not for me to clean me. This cleansing, it came from the outside of me. It says that he provided purification. We were sprinkled, we were washed. All of these are images of not something that we managed to scrub up ourselves, but something that came from the outside onto us, that removed from us the filth and the muck, the mistakes and the errors and the wrong and the bad ideas and the poor choices. All of this has been washed away by his cleansing work. It says that our hearts have been sprinkled clean. The priests to enter into the presence would be sprinkled by the blood as if to say there has been a sacrifice that is acceptable that has made me able to be here. And from the work of Jesus, our hearts have been sprinkled because we are reminded of his finished work. We get such a cleansing picture. We get such a picture when we stop and recognize this work of Jesus that as the hymnist said that where sin had left a crimson stain, you have washed me white as snow. When we step into the faith, place that faith that brings with it full assurance, the fear of condemnation, the fear of rejection, the fear of being shamed is broken off our lives. There is a confidence that comes with a clear conscience. And the writer says, once you get this, draw near to God. Recognize that God's not skirting you. God's not kind of like, kind of like making sure you don't get near him like kids with dirty hands coming to you. God's not like worried about it because he knows that he is able to clean you. Your filth is not going to get on him. He wants to receive you so that he can clean you and call you his own. Allow your spirit to become bold in approaching him with a sincere heart. What does that mean? A single desire. In James 4, 8, it says, come near to God and he will draw near to you. It goes on and says, wash your hands, you sinner, purify your hearts, you double-minded. What is James saying? He says, if you would have a single desire of Jesus, he is able and faithful to cleanse you. And if you take one step towards him, he'll be rushing towards you. 
Friends, is tonight the first let us draw near? Is tonight the night for you to lay down your objections, lay down your reasons, lay down all of your, all of your hesitations to drawing near to God and allow yourself to be filled with the overwhelming knowledge that our God loves you and cleanses you and delights in your nearness to Him? Draw near to God. First, let us draw near. Second, He says, let us hold fast. He says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Let us hold fast to what? To traditions? To certain styles? To certain worship sets? To preachers? To dogmas? Do we have to hold on to opinions? No, he says, let's hold fast to the hope that we profess. What is that? Hold fast to Jesus alone. Tim Keller says it like this, hope is not a new political leader, a new economic system, or a new morality. Our hope is Christ alone. The hope that we profess is this, that Jesus Christ is alive. Come on, if you believe that, the the hope that we have is not that that we just hold on to just the the hope that certain things are going to turn out. No, our hope is in Jesus, that we are going to hold on with everything we have in light of circumstances and situations and turmoil in the world that is trying to distract us, we're going to do everything we can. Now that we have people invited into the presence, our duty is to hold on to Jesus. And can I tell you, if we aren't holding on to hope, our hearts will do anything and everything to cling to something that we think is going to hold us. Here's the thing, the cross doesn't just forgive our past, it secures our future. As we read before, it goes behind the curtain. It enters into the very presence of God and secures for us our eternal destination. I'm a massive nerd. I'm not, I don't hide that ever. Just like, I, how many Lord of the Rings fans in the room? Fantastic. Less than 2000s. Okay. Um, but imagine with me, if you will, and I like to think about it like this. Imagine with me, if you will, Frodo Baggins, nephew of Bilbo, hero of the Third Age, is mounting those terrifying steps into Mordor. He's on his way to destroy the ring. It feels like everything is falling down around him. His best friend is also a hobbit and a kind of a hairless skinny dude. He's entering into the tunnels of Sirith Ungle. Well, what? And it feels like, right now, it feels like the entire weight of the world is around him. He is like, he's just, he's beat up, he's scratched up. It feels like everything is going wrong. Imagine with me for a moment, if in that moment, J.R.R. Tolkien wrote himself into the story and said, Hey Frodo, I know it looks bad right now, but you got to know, I've already, I've, I know how this ends. It actually, it works out fine. The good guys win. Imagine with me for a second if in the middle of the dark night that Frodo was in, the author came through and said, I actually know how this story ends and it turns out good. I would imagine that in spite of difficult circumstances, Frodo's heart would have been filled with something like hope. Friends, can I tell you, into our story came the author of life. And he says, hey, I know that right now, I know that there are days that it feels like it's all going great, but there are also days that it feels like the weight of the world is on your shoulder. But here's the thing. I wrote the story, and I know how it ends. 
And you've got to know that even if it feels like tomorrow or whatever is on the next page feels like it's the end of your story, you've got to know whatever is on your next page, it's not the last page. And because what happens when we become Christians, when we put our faith in Jesus, our story is spoiled. It's like we accidentally skipped to the end of the movie and found out that the good guys went. The author of history stepped into creation and said, while it looks like you were in the darkest of night, lo, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, because though it is bad right now, I know that one day I will be dancing on the streets of glory, because I know how the story ends. I can have confidence, I can have security, I can have hope, I can have steadiness, and I can have peace. Why? Not because we put our hopes in things, but because we put our hope in that which we profess. Christ, Him crucified, and Him alive. Can I tell you, if you put your trust in Jesus, your story is ruined immediately. We are back of the book people. Because of that, do not let go of Jesus regardless of everything. Don't let go because it doesn't look good right now. Don't grab a hold of something else. Can I tell you that that, that I've met with so many young adults that that are frustrated at God, they're annoyed, that it feels like, you know, he's just, he doesn't like me. Things aren't going to go well. And I get it. There are are difficult circumstances and I'm not having a go at all. But when you talk and you say, hey, when you reached out to Jesus, did did he turn his back? No. When you focused your attention on him, did he turn away from you? No. Well, Jesus hasn't let you down. Which makes me think, perhaps your hope wasn't Jesus. Your hope was a gift from the giver and not the giver himself. Don't get me wrong. The giver loves giving gifts. He delight, He loves giving promotion. He loves health. He loves uh, just turning things around in your life. But if you become fixated and affix your hope to a thing and not the thing, you will find yourself despondent and frustrated and disappointed. But when we hold unswervingly to Jesus, come on, there is a steadiness that comes into our heart. There is a security that fills our lives. Let us draw near. Let us hold fast. And the last one, let us go together if the band wants to join me. It says this, as let us consider how we may spur one another on to love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. If we are going to be people of the presence, if we are going to go continually deeper into the things that he wants, you have to know this, we can't go alone. We can't go it alone. We need each other. Can I tell you that sometimes I've seen pastors, not in this church, but I've seen pastors pick up this scripture and use it to manipulate you into regular church attendance as if, like, hey, this is why, and if you're not here, you're a bad person, and whatever else, this is not what he's saying. He's saying, if you really want to follow Jesus, what can I just, can I caveat? You don't need to come to church to follow Jesus, just so that you know that. However, the person beside you needs you to help them follow him well. And you need them 
to help you follow him well. See, this is not, Jesus isn't trying to make for himself persons. He's making for himself a people. This is a group activity because how many people know there are so many opportunities right now for us to draw the line onto who, who it is that we decide is on our side or not. He says this, consider, give careful thought, give yourself time to pay attention, to scheme. How are you going to spur one another on? Spur. Have you seen, you know, a Western movie? There's like those little sharp things that sound awesome when they kind of... The sharp things on the back. Spurs. Why are they called spurs? Because they're just they're used to kind of poke and prod and frustrate and push. The writer of Hebrews is saying this. Scheme. Consider, plan, give careful thought and attention as to how you can poke, prod, frustrate, annoy, push towards love and good works one to another. Give each other, give careful attention as to how you can move people to love. Consider how you can help the person beside you and how they can help you continue to push you into the thing that Christ has made you to do, which is what? To love. There are more opportunities than seemingly ever to choose whether or not we are going to love well. This weekend, our nation has been given the opportunity to draw dividing lines as to who it is. And you have in this moment, this weekend, an opportunity in your heart to decide whether or not you are going to draw lines around who it is that you're going to accept who it is that you're going to welcome, who it is that you're going to forgive, who it is that you're going to think, well, they actually belong and they don't belong and this is right and that's wrong and I'm going to draw circles around who I think deserves to be sitting in my row. And this is why we need the church because you need the person beside you to poke and prod and remind you that as believers, we do not have that choice. You don't, you've not, because of the outrageous, wondrous, uh, just unimaginable grace that Jesus is showing you because of the very wonder of grace that He has poured into your life. We no longer have the choice to decide whether or not we are going to love. And you need the person beside you, especially in moments like we're in right now, to help push you and prod you and remind you that that is not an option for you. We need each other to provoke us. Remind us, do not settle for unforgiveness in your heart. Don't allow division to take a hold of us as a church. We need to give careful attention. If we want to be people of the presence of God, we need to be people that radically love each other. And to give attention how we can spur towards love and good works poke and prod remind each other that you don't get to decide everybody else is saying that you get to park up here but as people of the presence that we need to continually be moving ever more into spaces of love we need to be moving towards those of differences of opinions 
me moving towards people, forgiving people, loving people, welcoming, serving those who vote different, think different, uh, just uh, who decide to support different camps. We need to provoke each other to say, there cannot be lines in our heart as to who we love. We have to love well. Paul calls love a higher way. Recently, I was making a cake. I said, none of this packet mix. I'm not an amateur. Grabbed everything that I thought was necessary. Grabbed eggs, grabbed milk, a little sprinkle of vanilla. The recipe called for self-raising flour. And all we had was just flour, flour. And in my mind, flour, self-raising flour, they're both the same. Self-raising flour has just got a little more pep in its step. It's kind of chuffed with itself. It's figure, same, same. So I throw it all in and mix it up and then we put it in the oven. And then what comes out was something. It just wasn't cake. You know, Paul calls love the essential ingredient of the Christian life. That without love, it could be something. It's just not the thing we call it. He says, without love, you can, you can be so intelligent. You can speak in tongues. You can prophesy. You can do all this and that. But if you have not love, you have nothing. We need each other to continue to push us into a greater space of love. There was a season as a teenager, I had all of these hopes and dreams and pictures of who and what I would be as a young man. And for whatever reason, I, you know, I thought I'd be you know, some champion swimmer or something. Turns out I'm not that good. Then mix that with the injury. I was just, I was just bitter, just frustrated. Maybe that's your experience right now in life or in church or whatever you're just you're just bitter and I would I would come to church and I would listen to the music I would hear the preacher and it's like no matter what they spoke about it just would not get through and I was just frustrated and I was angry just a bitter teenager and, and I would turn up to this place and it did not matter what was spoken from the platform just nothing would get through have you ever experienced that? just seasons of just ugh And yet in the middle of this, even as a young man, there's just so bitter and just a terrible attitude. If you knew me then, I'm sorry. Hopefully that's not your experience now. But there was a man, the name of Ian Young, who every week as a young man, who's just angry, never going to preach, never going to stand on a platform, but every single week when we would sit up there, He would find me. He could see an attitude all over my face and he would put a hand on my shoulder and he would say, you're a world beater. Shrug it off. The week after, he'd say, God's got his hand on you. Shrug it off. Then he'd, week after, he'd say, Ryan, there's destiny on your life. And week after week, for months, he would find me every single week without fail. And he would put his hand on my shoulder and he would speak something into my life. And I got to tell you, there were some incredible messages that were spoken through that time. But it was the encouragement of a man named Ian Young that began to do something in my spirit. And I got to tell you, I don't know how he did it, but I started to believe him. 
something in my spirit began to change. Why? Not because of a platform. Can I tell you? We cannot fall into the trap of just coming and having a, a just an entertainment view of what this is all about. Because I didn't know it then, but I know it now. What he was doing, and he would never call it this. He would have never have called it this. What he was doing is he was prophesying into my spirit. Words of encouragement. He was considering how he could poke and prod and frustrate and push me into a place of love and good works. Can I tell you, friend, you need the person beside you. Just as much as you need a preacher, you need the person beside you to turn to you every week and call something out in you. You need the prophetic insight and encouragement of the people that sit in your row to begin to speak into your spirit. If we're going to be people of the presence of God, we cannot rely on the entertainment of a stage. We need the sainthood of all believers to begin to rise up in our midst and say, in the foyer, in the rose, in the greeting time, wherever I see you in life group, I am going to do my priestly duty and I'm going to speak life in your soul. If we're going to be people of the presence of God, we need to learn to speak life into one another. Can we stand right across this room? Here's the thing. Three lettuces. If we're going to be people of the presence of God, if we're going to persevere into just not just moments, but a life of encounter. Three encouragements. says, let us draw near in faith. Let us hold fast in hope. And let us go together in love. Let me make it real simple. If we're going to be people of the presence of God, our lives need to be marked by three words. Faith, hope, and love. He said, the writer of Hebrews says, in light of all of this, in light of the fact that the way has been made open, faith, hope, and love. If you want to live life as a person that experiences God in your day-to-day life, faith, hope, and love. Paul writing, he says, these three things remain. Faith, hope, and love. If you want to experience God in your day-to-day, faith, hope, love.